This is Sports Jam. I'm Doug Doyle, and my guest was officially inducted into the International Boxing Hall of Fame this month. A wonderful boxing promoter, television and film producer, and minor league baseball executive, Lou DeBella. Great to have you on the show, Lou. Great to be with you. Since starting Debella Entertainment in 2000, a full-service sports and entertainment company, Lou has worked with many world-class fighters, including Bernard Hopkins and most recently George Cambosis Jr. And early in June this month in Australia, the George Cambosis versus Devin Haney undisputed world lightweight championship fight took place. From Marvell Stadium here in Victoria, Australia, this is the contest the world has been waiting for. The fighters are ready. So for the thousands in attendance and the millions watching around the world, ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready to rumble! Devin Haney won that fight by unanimous decision. What a month it has been for Lou DiBella. Let's start with the big fight in Australia. What did that mean to you? You know, it's not very often in your career where you promote an event in front of over 40,000 people. Um, and in fact, in my career, it's only the second, that's the second largest crowd I've ever uh, promoted um, for. Um, I did a fight in Argentina with Sergio Martinez. It was in a monsoon and 52,000 people still showed up. Um, he slipped and hurt his ankle in the first round of the fight, but still won. But I'll never forget that night either. But um, look, to be able to promote an event in front of 40,000 people, in Australia one week before I was getting inducted into the boxing hall of fame. I mean, there was some poetry to that, you know, to have one of the biggest nights of my career right before my induction meant a lot to me. And, and, uh, and I can't even tell you what induction weekend was like. It was, um, it's nice to get your roses when you're still breathing. You know, it's, it's, uh, you know, we, we, we don't get a chance that often. Most of us never hear our own eulogies. And, um, strangely getting into a hall of fame is, almost gives you that kind of opportunity. I mean, it was nice to get that, that kind of recognition, particularly from the fans who I've had a really good relationship with for over 30 years. I mean, I, I, I understand without them, there is no boxing. Um, and it was really like a celebration of boxing in Canastota, New York. When I was about 10 years old, I had a transistor radio under my pillow to listen to my hero, Muhammad Ali, by Joe Frazier. And uh, getting round-by-round round updates on WINS radio in New York. I never could have imagined being here today. Boxing's been such a tremendous part of my life, and it's created so many opportunities for me. I got to have lunch with Nelson Mandela and talk boxing. I got to play myself in a Rocky movie. I went to 50 countries as a, uh, as a television executive and a boxing promoter. I've gotten to meet some of the most amazing people on the face of the earth, some of the most creative people kings and, and presidents and why because they were boxing fans even casual boxing fans i would urge them to do that trip once you know go to go to induction weekend one time because it really is if you're a boxing fan it's it's a celebration of the history of the sport but it's a celebration of the 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 moment in the sport it, it's it's really uh, tens of thousands of fans descend on upstate new york there's a parade of boxing heroes. There's, you know, the people are wandering around the Hall of Fame. There are memorabilia shows. And it's sort of like a three or four day kind of boxing fest. And 
you know, the, I, I know that boxing is ingrained in the fabric of this country. It's, it may be a niche sport now, but I've said this time and again, I think our niche is a powerful one. And um, I would urge people to check out the Boxing Hall of Fame if they haven't had the opportunity to do it. So much wonderful history in this sport. And when you think about Lou DiBella and the journey, a Brooklyn native, someone who graduated from Regis High School in New York City and then continued his education at Tufts University before pursuing a doctoral degree at Harvard Law School. And now he's one of the most famous boxing promoters in the world, Boxing Hall of Famer. Does a Hall of Fame kind of announcement make you think about the trip that you've made? You know, I'm a big Grateful Dead fan, um, you know, and, and it's been a long, strange trip, you know? Sometimes the light's all shining on me. Other times I can barely see. Lately it occurs to me. But there was always a method to my madness, even like I knew pretty much I didn't want to be a lawyer when I was I was doing radio in in college and I loved doing radio at Tufts. And and I thought to myself, you know, maybe I'll do some FM radio for a couple of years. And and um, I started interviewing during my 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 senior year just to see if there was anything out there for me to do when I graduated and making nineteen thousand dollars a year wasn't of great appeal to me. I mean, I love radio. It just doesn't pay very well, and, um, that was like that was the consideration. I was sitting there saying to myself, "Okay, what am I going to do?" So I like I took the LSATs and I took the business boards just to see how I would do because I'm a good standardized test taker, and and I did really really well. And then it occurred to me, well, maybe if I go to Harvard Law or Stanford Law or Yale Law, someone will take me seriously with this Brooklyn accent. Because I didn't have any like familial ties to sports or entertainment, and my dad worked for uh, the government, you know, for customs. My mom was a poet and a teacher, so like I didn't have big business contacts and a middle class kid from Brooklyn. So I, I thought, but you know what? If I can get into Harvard Law School, maybe that credential will help me. And and undoubtedly, that credential did help me. Um, I, I worked at a big law firm for a few years, Sullivan and Cromwell for four years where, where I learned how to think like a lawyer, which was very helpful in the boxing business. Um, but I always knew I wanted to be in sports. And, and my agenda was to use the legal job as a launching pad to get into the sports world. And actually, the way I got my job in boxing, my job at HBO, was because I was interviewing for a job in baseball. I was interviewing with the Yankees to be general counsel of the New York Yankees. And the interview was in 1989, and I was in my 20s, my high 20s. And um, I, I was narrowed down to three people for the job, and we were all supposed to go in for a final interview with George Steinbrenner on a Friday afternoon. And I got a call in my apartment that Friday morning from a very sheepish Steinbrenner secretary telling me that George had just looked at my resume, and while he thought it was impressive... He didn't really want to interview a 20-something-year-old kid for the job as chief, chief lawyer to the Yankees. He thought I was too young. So he canceled the interview at the 11th hour. 
no question I would have taken the job had I gotten it at the, at the time. But I didn't. But the secretary knew that the guy who was going to be offered the job was interviewing for the job as general counsel of HBO Sports. So she said to me, this might help you because obviously you can't take two jobs. But this guy was interviewing for the you know, general counsel position at HBO Sports. And immediately a light went off from my head, HBO Sports, Seth Abraham, boxing, you know, HBO had, had done in the mid 80s. Uh, Hagler Hearns was an HBO fight. You know, HBO was emerging as the powerhouse in televised boxing, even at that point. So in the late 80s, they were at the top of their game. And, and uh, I snuck in past the security guard in the HBO building. You could still do that. 11 years before 9-11. Um, and I, I talked my way into the general counsel's office, even though he was ready to hire someone else. He sent me up to Seth Abraham's office and we sort of bonded. We were both guys from Brooklyn. We're both big baseball fans. Like baseball was my first love. It was also Seth's. And then we bonded over boxing. And I, and honestly, like I sort of knew boxing was probably my number one sport by then, you know, in the, in the late eighties. And, the one I followed the most closely. And, and, and I, I pretty much had a, an expertise in the sport at that point that I knew was almost diseased. Like I figured it would, you know, I had to know as much about boxing as most of the people in the HBO building. Anyway, I got, I, I went in on Friday for an interview and I got a job on Monday and that, that changed my life. That opportunity changed my life. So a uh, possible job with the Yankees, is one of the reasons why Lou DiBella is in the International Boxing Hall of Fame. Wonderful years with HBO Sports and all the wonderful fights that uh, he has been associated with, and not just uh, with HBO, but many other aspects uh, of the boxing world. I wanted to ask you right off the bat, since we talked about it, how difficult is it, especially a Brooklyn native, to promote a fight in Australia? You know, you have to know what you don't know and what relationships you don't have, and you have to bring in the right people. But I put together a great team with, um, you know, a major uh, promotional entity from that part of the world, TEG, which is sort of like the AEG of, of Australia. They're a big concert promotional company, so they were able to do a lot of logistics for me. And then I brought in as a partner uh, a, uh, a, a, a New Zealand-slash-Australian promotional company. So I put together a team. It, it, honestly, it's promoting an event in Australia is not that different from promoting an event in in New York or promoting an event anyplace else. It's it's sort of the same logistical kind of concerns and 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 uh, event related kind of concerns. It's the same kind of checklist. So the answer really was other than the fact that I was halfway around the world. I mean, the hard part, frankly, was the preparation of four months in which every meeting I had had to be overnight, basically, because, you know, we're on a completely flipped schedule from Eastern Standard Time and to, uh, to Melbourne time. And, uh, you know, basically 10 o'clock in the morning in New York is midnight in Australia. And midnight in Australia is... is yeah, two in the afternoon here. So, you know, you're on a completely flipped kind of clock. And that was very difficult. I mean, my 
I'm still adjusting, readjusting in you know, my body to, uh, to a normal kind of time zone. Um, you know, because I was up at all the hours of the day and night, um, catching sleep when I could and working uh, ungodly hours. But now that that's in my rear view mirror, um, and also if we go back to us, if we were, you know, if we should, we go back to Australia for a rematch, um, you know, it'll be a lot easier the second time. I mean, the question was, how hard is it in another country? It's, it's much easier the second time. You get, you get the logistics under you, you, you meet the right people, you know what you have to do, and then it becomes easier when you do it again. Ladies and gentlemen, after 12 rounds, we go to the scorecards. Zoltan and Yeti and Manuel Rousseau both scored it, 116 to 112. Pavel Cardinia calls it, 118 to 110. All three judges have it for the winner by unanimous decision. From Las Vegas, Nevada, USA, now the universally recognized undisputed lightweight champion of the world, Devin the Dream Haney. And I'm sure people are clamoring for that rematch because it, it was a very interesting fight. It was an interesting fight, but it was sort of dominant by by Devin Haney. It was a honestly it was a like a masterful performance by a very young kid. Can hear the corner of Haney encouraging him to put the right hand behind the jab at this point. Gambosis free swinging with a right of his own, and again Haney able to get out of range. Good footwork, good upper body movement from the undefeated American Devin Haney. The whole fight was the jab, and it, it was the jab as a weapon. And and you know you hear boxing people say all the time the whole key to boxing is the jab. The jab sets everything up. The jab is the sort of the the place setter of everything that follows. Um, but you really saw that in that particular fight. I mean, Devin Haney completely controlled that fight with a jab. Kept Cambosis at a distance, prevented Cambosis from landing his usual barrage of punches, really had him um, discombobulated in there. And, uh, it, and it was really a boxing clinic. Um, I also don't think it was Cambosis' best night. And, you know, that's one of the things about every sport. And and, bo and boxing, it's starker than any other sport because your whole career can change in 10 seconds if you get caught with a punch. And certainly your whole career can change in a 10-round fight, you know, where you can have a bad series in baseball, a bad month in baseball. You can have a bad year in baseball if you're in a multi-fight multi contract, and it doesn't affect you all that much. Um, but 10 seconds in a boxing match can change your professional life. Um, and one bad performance can change your professional life. And I just don't think George had, it, it was a really distracted poor night for him. I thought not, not at all his best night. I think if there is a rematch, I think there will be, it'll be a much better fight. Um, because basically Cambosis has to go all out um, and has to just pay the price for trying to walk through that jab. You know, in, in the fight with Haney, that jab sort of kept him away. He has to be willing to commit to walk through that jab, even if it means, you know, putting himself at a little bit of risk. But I think in a rematch, he'll do what's necessary to make it a much more entertaining fight. You mentioned at the final news conference heading into that fight that Cambosis could have taken an easier route after winning the title. 
And he said, you know, I want to fight the best. In hindsight, did he make a poor choice and maybe fought Devin Haney too soon? Um, you know, I, I, I tried to present him with all the alternatives. Um, I'm not going to say he made a poor choice, though, because I don't think you ever make a poor choice fighting the best. I, I think, frankly, the health of the sport of boxing would be significantly better if every fighter had that attitude that Cambosis had, which is fight the best. And frankly, Haney had that attitude. And I admire him for that. He's a young kid. His father had some some criminal stuff on his record that was literally 25 years old. And his father wasn't sure he could get into Australia literally until the day before the fight, which is when he got in. Wow. He had been, immigration authorities in Australia had blocked him until that final day they gave him approval to come in so haney who had never been in a fight without his dad in a corner um at 23 years old was getting on an airplane to travel halfway around the world without his father and his number two trainer because that's how he viewed the opportunity he wasn't going to let that opportunity slide no matter what that's the championship mentality for particularly for a 23 year old kid so i was extremely impressed by devin in that fight um, both by what he did in the ring, but but the mentality of a champion, of a winner. You know, putting everything on the line, knowing maybe these aren't the ideal circumstances, but maybe these circumstances don't come around again. How often am I going to get the opportunity to fight in front of 40,000 plus people and win an undisputed title in one night? I mean, in one night, Devin Haney became a star. He went from having one belt to having all of them and being one of boxing's undisputed champions. He would not have had that happen to him if he wasn't willing to take the risk that was associated with it, which was the risk of going there without your normal corner, hostile territory, and fighting another young champion in his backyard. Um, it showed me a lot that he did that. You mentioned the word winner. Anybody who has followed Lou DeBello's career knows that you are a winner, a well-known fixture in the film industry as well, having worked as an executive producer for the film Love Ranch, an associate producer on The Fighter, and you even made an acting debut as, what else, a boxing promoter in Rocky Balboa. Thanks for coming by. I appreciate right. it. No problem. Our pleasure. So you want to hear some stories? What kind of stories? <laughs> well, a lot of people like to hear these old fight stories, you know. Maybe later. Okay. I'm Lou DiBella. This is Elsie Luco. He's Mason Dixon's manager. Like to sit down and join us? Sure. How was that experience for you? I mean, I mean, if, if you're my age, which you know, I'm, I'm around 60, if you're my age, you were, you were two things are certain. You were influenced, if you're in boxing, you were influenced by Muhammad Ali and you were influenced by Rocky Boat. Those two things you can count on. There's no one in my, around my age range who was in boxing that wasn't influenced by the Rocky films. So being able to play a promoter in a Rocky film and then have that promoter named Lou DiBella, I mean, I was able to use my logo and my brand in that film. Um, it was a great opportunity, and I'll always be grateful to, to Sly for that opportunity. And, um, you know, it's something you'll never, I'll never forget, and it's part of a legacy that, uh, that I've left, and, and it's pretty cool. The film stuff, uh, you know, I, I've been a player i mean i've done a lot of movies particularly documentaries a long list of them i i never got into film to make money and frankly i haven't you don't make money on documentaries for the most part um 
but there have been a lot of passion projects and a lot of stuff. I just did a movie that had nothing to do. I executive produced a film um, that, that, that premiered about a year ago. It had nothing to do with boxing. It was about Larry Flint's run for president. And it's really a fine, fine film. Flint for president. Um, great young filmmaker made the film. She's unbelievable. Um, you should check out the movie. It's really about the First Amendment and Larry Flint's fight for the First Amendment. Um, I'm a big proponent of the First Amendment. And uh, I really enjoyed making that movie. Did I make a dollar on the movie? No. Um, mm. But that's not why I did it. And, and I think being able to play in production and also to be the managing owner of two minor league baseball teams has sort of given me a yin to my boxing yang. Um, you know, it's just, a, it's just a balancing act. I love boxing, but there is, it is a guilty pleasure. There is a darkness to boxing that there just isn't to minor league baseball. Um, and, and with the film stuff, I love storytelling. I mean, I'm, I'm actually a pretty good storyteller. I think that's why I'm, one of the reasons why I'm a pretty good promoter. Um, I think I know how to tell a narrative and I think I know, I know what interests people and what, you know, how you attract people to seats and how you attract eyeballs to an event. And storytelling has always been important to me. And being able to be a bit of a storyteller with some production stuff, um, it fills a need in myself. So it's really not about the bread. It's more about the creative, you know, the creative opportunity. I can't relate, Lou, because I make so much money as a public radio person. <laughs> uh, I, I can't even imagine not making money on documentaries. But you mentioned you have uh, done some uh, really good documentaries, and you want to check out Lou's list. But uh, Larry Flint for president is indeed worth your eyes. When we're talking about minor league baseball, and my tribute to Lou today is the, the defunct Staten Island Yankees hat, the defunct Newark Bears jersey behind me, because it's, it's a difficult business, especially these days, to run minor league baseball teams. But you got to love, first of all, let's start with the names. The Richmond Flying Squirrels and the Montgomery Biscuits, the AA affiliate of the Tampa Bay Rays. Let's go see the Biscuits coming up to bat. The only sound that you will hear are the bats going crack, crack, crack. Biscuits. I want some biscuits, butter and blue biscuits, playing day and night. I want some biscuits, Montgomery biscuits. They fill me up with hometown pride. I love the nicknames of minor league clubs, and I love their hats, and I got many of them. Well, we, we're, uh, we're constantly winning awards uh, uh, as being among the best names and best logos in minor league baseball. And um, the flying squirrels, I'm wearing, a, I'm actually wearing a biscuit. Uh, I mean, there it is. I'm, I'm wearing a biscuit shirt right now, but the flying squirrels logo, which looks like sort of like a Marvel superhero flying squirrel um, went over very well. And, and, uh, and there are a lot of professional athletes nicknamed the squirrel, like Julie, uh, Julian Edelman was nicknamed the squirrel, the flying squirrel. Uh, on the Patriots, and he wore all our merchandise constantly. <laughs> Jeff McNeil of the Mets is nicknamed the Squirrel, the Flying Squirrel, and he wears our stuff. And and actually, one thing I've noticed traveling as much as I do, you see a lot of minor league baseball merchandise at airports and around the country. And particularly, I'm happy to say you see 
our merchandise around. Um, the, particularly the squirrels have a huge following and our merchandise is all over the place. And Monty the Biscuit is a cool logo. How many, how many teams have a buttered biscuit as their logo? <laughs> And, the, and the, the Biscuits is just a cool name. Everyone loves the Biscuits. And, um, and you know, we, we sell an inordinate amount of merchandise. We're a small market. Montgomery is the cradle of the civil rights movement in this country, in my view. But we're, it's not a huge city. It's a growing little southern city um, but with a great history of baseball. And, but it's really become a, a, a must-see destination if you're going to do a civil rights tour of America. And our ballpark is really along that tour route in Montgomery. We're right walking distance from the, the, the lynching museum. We're walking distance from the, the uh, civil rights museum. Uh, Equal justice initiative is headquartered in Montgomery, Rosa Parks house. You go through the list of, of, uh, of substantial real monuments to civil rights movement that, that are in the Montgomery. It's a great city to visit. And one of the things I want to explore doing is putting a, a, uh, permanent exhibit into our ballpark that's uh, related to the the negro league museum in kansas city and one of the things i want to do is is talk to uh to the guys at the the negro league museum about about working together on that but i i mean i love minor league baseball i i love the the community element of it i mean in, in both of our cities we're huge assets to the community and i saw how much that was the case when we weren't playing like when, when it was, you know, during the pandemic and when we were shut down for a season and a half, basically, um, we were still actively in, you know, through Zoom and, and FaceTime. We were in the schools. We were in nursing homes and assisted living centers. Our mascots were waving through windows to kids and, and the elderly. Um, minor league baseball is a quality of life business. And, and it's a business that gives back a lot to the, the communities it's in. It gives a sense of identity to a lot of small towns and, and smaller cities and, and provides an opportunity to see real baseball, professional baseball uh, from markets that are too far removed um, really to get that experience regularly in the majors. Um, not to mention the fact that the majors are cost prohibitive for a lot of people. You know, taking a family of, of four to a minor league baseball game is a whole different economic experience than taking a family of four to a major league game. It's been difficult for some of the minor league teams in both New Jersey and New York to survive. And maybe it's because of, of circumstances. Maybe it's because of the fact that the Yankees and Mets um, ha have a great fan base. But for those who are thinking about becoming an executive or maybe starting a new uh, team. What advice do you have? Because obviously you have the magic touch. So what advice would you give minor league baseball potential cities or executives? Um, understand what you are and who you are. You're not all about the baseball. You're, you're about creating memories. That's really what you're about. You're about families. You're about fathers and sons mothers and daughters and mothers and sons you're about family entertainment you're about the community getting together and having almost like a uh, you know it, it, it's it's like baseball meets the county fair minor league baseball on a daily basis if you're doing it right you know there's stuff in that ballpark 
to keep the kids occupied for two hours plus. There's, uh, you know, there's affordable, decent ballpark food. There's, you know, there there are uh, games and on-field activities and all sorts of stuff to keep people engaged for the two and a half hours they're in the ballpark. Keep the kids busy, keep the parents in a situation where they can enjoy their couple of hours also. You have to understand what it is. So it's really, it, it's more of a, it's not just a sports thing. It's not just putting on a baseball game. It's providing that surrounding sort of environment and entertainment. It's making it fun. We call, you know, we call our, ourselves in Richmond Funville, you know, and our, and our motto in Richmond is have fun, go nuts, N-U-T-Z. Um, play on words because we're the squirrels um but but it's it's about having a good time and it's about you know i have a guy working for me named todd parnell he's a legend in minor league baseball frankly he's the guy you should get on npr he should be on your show because he is really the bill veck of minor league baseball in 2022 he's a legend in the minor league game the other advice i'd give in baseball is the same advice i'd give to anybody starting any business hire the best people Hire people as passionate or more passionate about what you're doing than you are. You know, party, you know, we have a guy running our operation who's a baseball lifer. He lives and breeds baseball. He loves minor league baseball. And he views his lifelong mission, he views his career as being a memory maker. And that's what he's great at. And that's why he's a legend in minor league baseball. I mean, Parney's the kind of guy that people continue, you know, he's already been considered multiple times for reality shows, um, you know, because he, he, he gets it. He's sort of a force of nature. And um, I'm privileged to be able to work with people like that. I mean, I'm, I'm lucky in both the minor league cities I have. I, the guy running my operation in Montgomery, Brendan Porter, has worked with me since he graduated from college in the early 2000s. So he's been working for me for nearly 20 years. And now he's our like chief 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 uh, executive officer in Montgomery. I've worked with Parney since I've been involved in minor league baseball, and he's just a force of nature. So I'm fortunate to work with people that are among the best at what they do, and they're passionate about baseball. They love minor league baseball. They view it as a vocation, as a calling. You know, they were called to create memories. They were called to force people to have fun for two and a half hours. You know, um, and. Uh, and that's contagious, you know. They're like I'm. I'm as, you know, their passion for what they're doing has rubbed off on me. And 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 also, I'm a much better minor league baseball operator because of the people that work for me. Because the people that work for me are that good. Great advice. And uh, as you mentioned, for anybody starting any kind of business, before we run out of time, I wanted to ask you a question that uh, you've probably been asked before, but maybe in a different light. You get an opportunity to go on a road trip and there's room in your car for three people. You are allowed to pick one person from the film industry. You are allowed to pick one person from baseball and you are allowed to pick one person from boxing. Now they can be dead or alive. Who's going on that trip? Wow. And what, will, what will dominate the conversation? Well, that's a, that is a great, that's such a great question. One from baseball, one from boxing and one from film. Wow. Okay. I'm going to go with Roberto Clemente from baseball. I should have had my Roberto jersey up here for you today. 
Now, this, this is going to be an interesting one for you because the person I'm going to name in boxing, I knew. And I had the opportunity to take road trips with him. I'd be in a car with him and spend some time with him. And it was my ultimate hero, period, Muhammad Ali. But I'm going to pick Muhammad Ali because I never got to know Muhammad when he was healthy. And when he was, you know, he was always completely there and, and bright and, and engaging and kind. I mean, I, you know, I picked the right hero. One of the things I've always been grateful for was I picked the right hero. You know, one of the things that makes, sometimes when you work in sports or entertainment, I think you know this, you, you know, you've had the opportunity to talk to a lot of people. It comes with the territory sometimes that you get to meet your heroes. Well, that could be great. It could also be vastly disappointing, right? But in my case, it really wasn't, you know? But I would have loved to have had the opportunity to spend time with Ali when he was at his 100% healthiest and, and most vibrant. And, and as much as I cherish the times I did spend with him, I, I probably would still pick him because there's so much I would have asked him if there was a really if it was easier for him to be super conversant and it wasn't during the years I knew him. So it would be Clemente Ali now film through any, any point in time. Uh, maybe Jimmy Stewart. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's a wonderful life was a favorite film of mine. And, uh, and I also thought that like, I, I've always, mar always marveled at his ability to play like the common man, but so many, different roles how versatile he was in an af as an uh, as an actor you think about that that road trip you've got a lot of different things covered there right with roberto yeah, yeah. and muhammad and jimmy stewart would just be there he would be he would be the wild card in that he would he would probably flip the script and as you talk about storytelling i can imagine that he would be able to really engage with all three of you in a very unique way. That, that's a great, that's a great selection, Lou. Uh, I'd like to, I'd like to be on top of the roof of that and just peeking in behind there and listening to that conversation. Well, with Jimmy Stewart, because the other thing that was popping into my head was one of my favorite actors, but he was a madman, um, Marlon Brando. And, and that would have been a very different dynamic. Oh, and yeah. I think in that it would have been a very different dynamic. I don't. I mean, I didn't get. I never got to know who Jimmy Stewart was, but my perception of him is as somebody that might be fairly inviting to other people's points of views and respectful of where they're coming from. And and I think that would have been sort of an eclectic little crew to take a road trip with. So, if anybody ever asked me, you know, what what's the one interview that you would like to do that you you didn't get a chance? I always say it would be Louis Armstrong because I always thought he was way ahead of his time. Because even in his home, he used to record, not just, uh, he would record audio recordings of the family just eating breakfast and things like that. So he was way uh, ahead of his time and obviously a tremendous uh, influence in jazz, which is a part of WBGO. But I'm so glad to hear you say, Roberto, because my favorite player of all time is Manny Sanguin. They were as tight as could be. And, uh, and uh, those are my two favorite players in baseball. Now, by the way, if you would, if, if you would expand it to musicians... Springsteen would have probably been on my on my in my top three, and then um, that storytelling trip and, would and, get and, even and frankly, better. Expanded, I'm also a jazz nut myself, and actually, this isn't a this isn't a person, but I would have loved to have gone out and had cocktails with Return to Forever, Chick Corea, Stanley Clark, that whole crew. And they were a big 
I was a big fusion jazz guy when I was a kid. I like your choices, Lou, and uh, we have uh, just a couple of minutes left here in Sports Jam. So I, I wanted to talk about what's the next big fight that you want to promote? You know, there's there's no particular fight on the on the horizon of, of, of what I want to do. It, it, you know, it's interesting. If anything, you, know, you do a lot of reflection when you get into a Hall of Fame because it means you've been around a while. I mean, I'm 30 plus years in the sport. Um, I, I've, I've like, I, I don't mean this in a negative way in, a, in any, any sort of way, shape or form, but I don't feel like there's much more that I need to do in boxing. If anything, I want to smell the roses more a little bit, maybe take a step back a little bit from the boxing, allow the people that work for me to do more. Um, I want to enjoy more baseball games and, and that part of my life. There's some projects I have on the back burner uh, production-wise that have been sitting around for a while that mean, are meaningful to me that I'd like to get to. So in a weird way, I'm, I'm more thinking of readjusting my time than I am about any particular goal, if that makes any sense. Oh, it certainly does. And a lot of people are doing that, especially since the coronavirus pandemic has upturned our lives so much. I want to thank Lou DiBello for being a wonderful guest and storyteller here on Sports Jam. Congratulations on the Hall of Fame and all your projects through HBO, through the rest of your career, and what's coming up next. Thanks. And thanks for being one of the great voices of public radio, which, by the way, is usually important to, to our country, usually important in general. I'm a huge fan of public radio, and it's great to be with you. Sports Jam is a WBGO Studios production. You can check out all the past shows by going to wbgo.org slash sportsjam or find Sports Jam with Doug Doyle on the NPR list of podcasts or wherever you hear podcasts. Until our next Sports Jam session, I'll see you at the game. Thank you.